Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 12th, 2016, and this is episode 1825 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got a great one for you today. You guys chose this show, and I'm glad you did. It made it in the second round, right? So I, I proposed this topic in uh, June, uh, building resilient children in a world full of wusses, wusses, and it did not make it in the voting for June with five uh, spots available in June because it was a lot of Mondays in that month, right? Because of when they started and when they ended. And I, I was like, man, I really thought that one would get voted on, and I thought, well, maybe people think I'm going to rant about all of the kids that, that aren't resilient, and about the system that created them rather than proposed solutions, and maybe that's why they didn't, so I'll, I'll put it in the, the voting for July, and it did very well, came in third place. Uh, so technically, technically, this is the second week of, uh, of Monday shows for July, but I'm going to do this one today because it's, it's been something I've wanted to talk about for a long time, because what I actually want to talk about today is 100% solution-oriented. I will spend a little bit of time talking about how we got here, both by well intentions gone wrong and malice, but that'll probably be about two minutes of the show. The entire rest of the show in the main part of the show today is going to be about the solutions and what's in your circle of influence. In other words, you can rant and, and rave and, and piss and moan all you want about children and young adults like in college today that need safe spaces uh, and are, are being protected from microaggressions at the very time in life. When you go to college, it should be when you are challenged to your core on every level, even if the challenge is uh, not true, so that you can actually figure out why you believe what you believe and become a more mature uh, and capable adult. And instead, now we're, we're sheltering this. And you can rant wave, rave all you want about that, but unless that kid's your kid or your grandkid or your nephew or your niece or something like that, there ain't jack shit you can do about it right now. There's not a damn thing you can do about it. Maybe you can create a program to mentor young adults or something like that. But again, we're back to your sphere of influence. I want to talk about how if you're a parent or a grandparent, you can actually have certain rules for how you parent in your life to make your children more resilient. Because that's what you can do, and therefore that's what you should focus on. Stephen Covey taught us this in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Focus on your circle of influence far ahead of your circle of concern. It definitely concerns me that we have a world full of wusses. And I'm doing what I can in my circle of influence, helping you know how to raise a resilient child into a resilient adult versus just focusing on all the people that aren't doing that and all the pieces of the system that are making that harder and harder every day. We can make excuses or we can make results. We can't do both. We'll talk about all of that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com, to learn more. 
Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5 to 10% of it in precious metals like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. Today, for the year 1825, I have the Panic of 1825 and 1987. I also have the Search for High Speed Communication and a Quiet End to a 470-Year Riot. And in other news, baseball is played once a week now. Details are vague, but it's gaining a prop popularity. Aluminum is produced for the first time. It is derived from aluminum chloride. The U.S. Postal Service creates the Dead Letter Office. Years later, this office will verify that Santa Claus actually exists, or maybe that was a movie. I'm going to read for you from the, sub, uh, the segments, The Search for High-Speed Communication. At this point, Samuel Morris is best known for his talent as an artist. He completes his painting of Lafayette this year to take advantage of the interest in Lafayette as he tours across America remembering the good old days. Morris starts on yet another work when he receives an urgent message from his father. Apparently, Morris's wife is ill. Then he receives another message shortly thereafter. His wife is dead. By the time Morris release, reaches home, his wife has been buried and a funeral is long over. He's naturally upset and wonders why there isn't a faster way to communicate a quick, simple message over long distance. My take by Alex Shrug. France already had a mechanical semaphone system at the time. But in 1832, Samuel Morris met a man who understood the mysteries of electromagnetism. And by 1838, the first telegraph message was sent using the Morse code system. By 1851, Morse code was accepted standard across Europe, and a survey was begun to explore the feasibility of laying a telegraph line across the Atlantic Ocean. In fact, the War of 1812 may have never happened if the U.S. Congress had realized that the English Parliament was voting to discontinue Shanghaiing American sailors. The U.S. vote to go to war occurred almost simultaneously with Britain's vote to take the U.S. grievance seriously. And this is the dawn of the world shrinking, folks. And it came from a tragedy. This shows us, and I'll be brief with my take on history today, that in the most tragic of things, a man not being at his wife's side when she passed away and taking so long to know that this was coming that he could not even be there to lay her to rest a system of communication that can prevent war was created. Think about that as we go through today's subject, because I will tell you in advance that one of my rules for raising resilient children is to praise them for their failures in proper context. With that, indeed, let us get into the main topic of today's show. And I do, in spite of what I said about not going on a rant today, want to talk as we get into this Raising Resilient Children, kind of how we got here. Um, th this is beyond, you know, everybody wins. This is beyond part participation trophies. This is beyond not keeping score in games. Because kids are smarter than that. It takes a while to actually beat competition and resiliency out of a child. It doesn't happen immediately. It doesn't happen in those those early years when they're five and six and playing their first basketball or baseball games. Because I remember when my nephew, Andrew, was five years old playing his first basketball games, 
and we would go to his games to watch him play, and they didn't keep score. And I, I, I said to his mother, what the hell? You guys don't keep score. And she said, don't worry about it. The kids do. So I walk down to the bench, you know, and I, I, I talk to the kids, and I say, what's the score? And they're like, uh, 18 to 3, we're kicking their butts. Oh, okay, right? But if you do stuff like this long enough, it does begin to devalue trying your best, working hard, succeeding over adversity, all these other things. And the way we got here, honestly, was through two different, totally different things. One is well-intentioned failure, and the other one is failure on purpose. And what I mean by well-intentioned is, you know, parents started doing things, like I've seen pictures of kids doing Easter egg hunts in a parking lot with the little colored plastic eggs just laying on the ground in the open because they wanted all the kids to find some eggs, right? It wasn't like they got around and said, let's make our kids into, into wusses. Let's make our kids into a bunch of pussies by not hiding eggs. It was like, well, we want them all to have fun and succeed, you know? And there's other ways you can do that and teach teamwork. Like you could hide the eggs and break the kids into teams and give every team a color and have them work together and then say, you guys find the blue eggs, you guys find the orange eggs, and at the end we all split them up amongst the team. That would teach teamwork. That would teach working together. That would teach the stronger helping the weaker, right? But, but because we didn't think that deeply about something so simple, we lost an opportunity to teach. And there's hundreds of examples like that of well-intentioned gone wrong. At the school educational level, and specifically at the upper educational level and university level, I believe this is being done with intent. This has been being done with intent to eliminate the concept of the melting pot and turning it into vulcanization. Right? So for some people, they may not understand that. So when we make a tire, we melt rubber into a single thing, and then we make a tire. And that tire is very, very strong and very, very resilient. We can put it on a car, and it can do 100 miles an hour or more, and it'll hold together. And eventually that tire wears out. It can only do so much. And back in the 80s, there was a thing called recapping. Recapping was where we took the frame of the tire, and then we only replaced the treads. We, and it was called vulcanization was the process they did that. They basically welded one piece of rubber onto the other. Now, if, if you haven't noticed, and there was a huge company, by the way, called Robert's Recaps at the time. And if you haven't noticed today, if you're not old enough to remember that, and I think many people my age wouldn't remember that. You would. You'd have to be like in your 50s, most of you, to remember this. Because most kids at eight years old aren't paying attention to the, 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 the tire industry. But since my father ran a tire shop, Right? I did. So what we learned, though, was cars would be going down the street and poof, the whole cap would blow off the tire. There's a vulcanization process. The process of trying to take two totally pieces of different rubber and attach one to the other wouldn't hold together. And it, would, and it became weak. And when we stop creating resiliency and when we create concepts like safe spaces... And you can't acknowledge that someone looks different than you. But you're supposed to respect their differences at the same time. It's offensive to tell somebody that they have nice shoes, as we recently had come out of a major university. And then they say, oh, we didn't do it. It was one person here who, by the way, won't comment on it. Yeah, No one does anything at a university without somebody else approving it at that level. Okay, We know this. I believe this was done to weaken us. Because the people in power want us weak, they want us divided, and if we are truly a melting pot where we all bring our unique customs, our unique views, our things together, we become resilient as a people, not just as individuals. But such a people are difficult 
to control. Such a group of people are difficult to put a feed bag on and put in a feedlot and treat like cattle. Such people are feral. They run in packs, right? They're not domesticated. And that's why I believe we got here on two levels. So well-intentioned people, and many of them also victims of that system. This became institutionalized by the 1980s, heavily in the 1990s. In fact, I'll put it to you this way. If you were born before 1978, there's a good chance that everything I'm saying makes perfect sense to you right now. And if you were born after 1978, there's a good chance that it does not. If it does... If you're not a wuss, and if you're already raising children that are resilient, or do you know that when you have children you're going to, go to your parents today and hug their neck and thank them. If you were born after 1978, and you grew up primarily in your developmental years, 12 and on, in the 90s versus the 80s and 70s, and you are resilient today, you had good parents that didn't let you insulate yourself from reality. And they deserve credit for doing that, so thank them very much today. And with that, let's get out of the problem and into the solution so that you can be a parent that your kids come to when they're 30 and 40 years old and realize all this shit and hug your neck and say thank you for not letting me be amalgamated, not letting me be vulcanized into this confusion and teaching me to be truly adaptive and resilient, accepting of others. Accepting of others, but not necessarily willing to embrace what they say or do unchallenged. To actually be my own man, be my own woman, think for myself, and yet be able to be a leader and a part of a team and a follower at the same time. That's my goal for you today. So my first rule, and I have ten rules and a bonus rule today. Well, in fact, I want to tell you something else, though, because a lot of you guys don't go to the blog. You might want to go to the blog today just to grab a photograph to share with other people on social media. I made a, a meme today, and it has the tspc.co short link uh, on it so that people that see it might come to the site. So it would help me if you did share it. And I've shared it on Facebook today as well. I'll put it out on Twitter later as a standalone photograph as well because I think it's a cool one. As a little kid standing in the woods looking at, at a tree, you know, a young kid sitting on a, a branch. And it says, and this is my quote, If you want a child who will grow into a resilient adult, Let them have adventures. Let them play in the forest. Let them be challenged. Praise them for both succeeding and for failing. Let them skin a knee. Get their hands dirty. Get tackled. Play with, quote, dangerous things so that they may grow up strong as we all did once, as we all once did not so long ago. And honestly, that advice is what you really need to hear. That's the core of everything I'm going to say today. This is what we've lost. This is what we've let go of out of a feeling of a need to put like a bubble of safety around every child. So it won't shock you to know that my first rule is let them fail. Let them fail at things. It's okay. And there's a lot of ways you can let them fail. If you see them trying to build something and they're doing it in a way that's not going to work, let them get to the point where they've realized it's not going to work. And, and when they ask for help, Don't do it for them. Help them complete it. I'll talk about that in a second. But also let them fail sometimes, even if they're going to hurt themselves. If they're not going to hurt themselves badly. If you see your child walking on a window ledge four stories high, and if they fall, they're going to get seriously hurt or die, obviously you have to intervene. If they're headed for a hot burner on a stove and about to slam their hand onto it, you know, people say kids learn from that, but that can be a very serious injury. You've got to intervene. But here's the, here's the actual real-world real example of my son. 
when I had first met Dorothy, and we were only in the beginning stages of our relationship. My 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 son Matthew, my he's actually my stepson, but to me he's just my son. Uh, but he wasn't real. I wouldn't even say that I was a true father figure yet because. I feel you have to earn the right to that, and we had not been in our relationship that long yet. Um, but I was I was willing to do the job if the relationship progressed. And I'm sitting on the couch, and so is Dorothy, and he had a little Swiss Army knife, okay? Um, you know, the kind that has a couple, you know, maybe scissors, a blade, a fingernail file, uh, and a toothpick in it, like those little bitty ones. And I don't even think it was a real one. I think it was like a knockoff. And I don't know where he got it, but I was kind of happy that he had it and she wouldn't take it away from him. And I don't remember what he was doing. If he was trying to pry open a toy or get open a, a package or something. And instead of using the blade, uh, probably because he was afraid of the blade and didn't know how to use it yet. And again, I'm only going to intervene so much at this point. He was using the fingernail file. And he's pushing. I'm thinking, he's going to poke himself. But, you know, the way he's doing it, he's not going to poke himself in the face or the eye. He's going to poke himself in the hand. And it took about 30 seconds, and he poked himself in the uh, left index finger pretty hard. Didn't break the skin. Swelled up red, hurt, and for you know a seven-year-old, maybe he was six at the time, about to be seven. He was seven years old, just seven. Started bawling. You know, it hurt. And he, my wife and I have a very fond memory of this because, you know, kids that age, like, they, they mix words together, and he starts bawling. He's like, I think I have to go to the hospital. And we're like, why do you think you have to go to the hospital? I think I cut an IV. Yes, I think I cut an IV. <laughs> so we let him cry himself out. We didn't try to overly, you know, fix things because it hurts, you know. It's, it'll be all right. And sooner or later he realizes it doesn't hurt that much anymore, and it's going to be okay. And then I've learned that I can hurt myself. And we, we learned all kinds of things. Things for that, from that, we learned that you don't have to go to the hospital unless you get seriously hurt. Because he was actually afraid to go to the hospital. We didn't know that till that happened. Um, we learned that you know that there's the right tool for the right job, and you have to know how to use it. We've learned that you can get hurt, and that hurt will go away if it's minor. We learned a lot of things from that. Had I snatched that out of his hand and done whatever he was doing for him, we would have lost all his teachable moments because I was unwilling to let him fail and unwilling him unwilling to let him feel some discomfort. Now, had he had the sharp blade out and was using it in, incorrectly, I would have taken it away from him. And this gave me the opportunity to actually teach him the right way to use a knife. We'll talk about that more in a bit. Um, another op option, though, or op, uh, real-world example of letting someone fail was when I was a kid, I decided I wanted to build lots of things. And my grandparents lived at a place that was a relatively new house, and there were a lot of houses being built in the area, brand new houses. And they had big junk piles where the, the workers throw all the scrap wood and you quickly find out as a kid, you can take that stuff and no one cares. You go, hey, mister, and they're like, oh, you take, if it's in that pile like that, you can just have it. Really? So I decided things like I would build bike ramps so I could do jumps and stuff like that. And a lot of times a piece of wood would not be the length you wanted it. So I remember very clearly a couple times being out in my grandfather's garage with a crosscut saw, right tool for the right job, and trying to saw a two-by-four. And if you've ever used a crosscut saw, you know that it you can go through a two-by-four, especially a piece of white pine, like that, if you know what you're doing. But it takes a certain amount of timing, it takes a certain amount of skill, and if you push too hard, it binds up, and if you do things the wrong way, it binds up, and there's a certain flow. And once you get that flow, and then you maintain that speed, you can just buzz through a two-by-four. But when you're eight, nine years old, it's a little bit harder when no one taught you how to do it. And I remember a couple different times being so frustrated and angry and like, ah, you know, like kids get like almost to the level of a tantrum and my grandfather coming out going, what's wrong? And I'd tell him and he'd say, let me show you how to do one. And he'd cut a piece of wood, but he wouldn't cut the piece of wood that I was trying to cut. And he'd say, now you do it. 
and he led me through it, and he let me fail over and over and over until I understood what to do. Where if he had cut the piece of wood for me, it would have taken that away. Let your children fail as long as the consequences aren't dire. The next one is challenge them. The next rule is challenge your children. Give them a goal beyond what they can do right now. Now, this also will allow them to fail. But sometimes they'll actually succeed where you thought they were going to fail. When, when your kid says, you know, I ran three laps today, tell them, I, I bet you can't do four tomorrow. Right? That's not poo-pooing their accomplishment. That's challenging them. When they start, you know, learning to play basketball, and, and they're, they're a little bit down on themselves because they only made three baskets out of, like, 20 shots, tell them, I bet you can't get to five out of 20 in the next week. Give it a shot. See if you can do it. And, and maybe offer them rewards at times, and other times let the accomplishment be its own reward. Don't always lose to a kid when you play a, a game with them. Let them learn how to win graciously and lose graciously. We're not all going to win all the time in life. This is part of one of the reasons I love putting kids in martial arts. Because you know what? When you put kids in martial arts and they have to spar with the other child, the other kid's not going to let them win. Now, if they're maybe more advanced and they're mature, they might go a little bit easier on them, but they're still not going to let them win. See, only we do stupid shit like that. You put two kids together, let them play a game, and they both try to win. And then we sit down and play a game with a kid, and we throw the game. Now, I do think there's a place, when you're teaching anybody a game for the first time, to go easy and actually instruct them in how to win. And therefore, you're letting them win by teaching them to win. But once they understand the game, you should bring your level up so that it's a challenge. Now, if you pride yourself on bashing the brains in of an 8-year-old at chess, and you're good at chess and they're just learning, you have a problem. Right, And you, if you are a good chess player, for instance, and you're teaching an 8-year-old who you can get interested in chess, chess, there is a place for holding back a little bit, but you don't just throw the game. You challenge them. You challenge them. When they say they can't walk any further and they want you to carry them, make them walk another 10 to 15 feet without whining and then carry them. You know, If they actually warrant being carried. Teach them that when, they, when, they, when they've gotten to the point that they don't think they can go further, that they can go a little further. And if you're always making them go a little further, then over time they go a lot further. Challenge your kids. And then another rule that I have is give them a system. Give them a system and teach them to, quote, work it, end quote. Here's what I mean by that. We all have a system that we have to be part of whether we like it or not, especially in the United States of America. It's called the income tax system. Now, there's some of us that don't know how to work that system. We go to work. We have no side businesses. We have no creative investments. We have no creative deductions. We, we don't understand the system. We just go to work. They take it out of our check. We fill out the simple short form at the end of the year, and we get our refund. Okay, It's not a refund. It's a return. You understand that? First of all, right? Just a lesson for the adults here. It's not a refund. It's 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 not getting money back on something that you paid for. That would be a refund, right? It's getting your own money back that they stole from you, right? But if you learn to work that system, then they get less of your money. You keep more of it, and you have more power. All right. Now, how do you get? How do you get to the point where you think that way? 
Well, the best way is to be a child who's given the opportunity to work another system. Now, you choose your own system, but I'm going to give you an example of a system that I set up when my son was eight years old and instructed him through a manual, and I sure wish I could find it because a lot of you have asked for it. I have no idea what happened to it. But I, I wrote a manual for him that basically instructed him, here's the rules of the system, and here's how you can work it to your advantage. What this was was his allowance. We agreed that until such time as he failed his obligations in this manual, uh, miserably, that he would get paid his allowance in his age every month. Right? This was heavily weighted toward his advantage, by the way, when I give you the whole picture here. So eight years old, eight dollars a week. But the way that worked out was he had a dog, for instance, and this week he might have the job of washing the dog, and he might get paid two dollars to wash the dog. Well, the dog has to get washed, or maybe the trash has to go out one day, and that might be a dollar. We'd have a whole list every week of the things he had to do. Most of them are recurring things, and occasionally we had like a floating time where we could say, oh, you got to do this this week, and this is pays this. So if he didn't wash his dog, well, I washed his dog, and he had to pay me $2. Now, let me explain how this works. This does not mean $8 minus 2 is 6. This means $8. You don't get paid the two, so it's six. You owe me two, now you're at four. And it was very, very possible that he would end the week and owe us money and have nothing coming. Seems tough. Here's where it gets better. We had a bonus structure. Get everything done. Miss not a single job for a month and get a $5 bonus. Kind of cool, huh? Um, any amount of, of money that you're willing to put into basically a 401k, and we even called it that, but we called it like a kid's 401k, which was just basically a, a, a jar that we oversaw as the bank to keep your money in, we will match up to $5 a month. Oh, think about that. So what that meant is he could get all his jobs done by any way. And if, if he had hired a friend to do it, that would have been fine with me. I'd, I would have been like, wow, he never snapped to that, but... You know, whatever he could do. I did think, I do think he, he suckered a couple friends into helping him, you know, pick up dog turds and stuff so they could go play video games on occasion. That was good. But if you think about it that way, so he could get a $5 bonus just by doing all his work. Keep all his money, put that $5 in the bank and get another $5. Now he's got a $10 addition, right? And there was a bunch of other ways we built it. I can't even remember them all. But in the end, it was possible for him to make I think up to like 50 or 60 bucks a month. But a lot of that had to be put away in savings for him to maximize that. And every day when he did his job, he had to come to us with a little timesheet and say, I did my job today. And we would check off that he did his job. And if his, if, I don't care if he did the job, if he didn't check it, get us to check it off, unless we made the error, like I'll do it tomorrow and we didn't, if he didn't take that responsibility, then he didn't get credit for the job. And you might think that's too advanced, but man, this kid latched on to that crap. And he figured out how to maximize every opportunity in there. So much so that there were times he really didn't feel like doing a chore. And he had done really good the month before, and he said, I'll let that one slide and I'll pay somebody else to do it. You might think that's slacking, but that was understanding the system and how to work it under all of the intricacies of the system. Now, we got to a point where we're like, okay, that's not going to work, and we will actually make the penalty heavier. For instance, as he got to about 12 years of age, we stopped going with floaters. No floaters. 
there were things that he was expected to do outside of his chores, like wash his dog. So the dog stinks, and the dog is no longer on the list of chores, and he can get his full allowance and all his bonuses without washing the dog. The dog stinks for four weeks, and the dog now stinks more than the dog stunk four weeks ago when I told him to wash the dog, wash the dog, wash the dog, wash the dog. He comes home from school, and the dog is sitting there, and you can tell when the dog's had a bath. They're all clean, they're soft, they smell. And he sits down, and the dog comes to greet him because the dog loved him, and he pets the dog, and he, he looks at the dog, and I can tell he sees that the dog got a bath. And I can see the smirk. It worked. I got out of it. And I walk up to him, I hand him a bill for $32, an itemized bill, for my time and materials to wash his dog, and yes, I made him pay it. Teach them to work systems. Give them systems to work, but give them the consequences when they don't do what's expected of them. Next, get their hands dirty. Get their hands dirty. Get them out of the house and get their hands in the dirt. It doesn't have to be gardening. Get them to do something. Another story with my own son. We come home from work. We come home from like being out one day. It was a week that I didn't have to travel. This is back when I traveled all the time. And, um, We had this huge pile of bricks that were left over from the house that they had built when they built our house that we had in Pennsylvania. And he says, you know what? We should do something with those bricks. I said, what do you think about making a fire pit? He said, that sounds cool. Go get a shovel. Right? But, but no, no, you want to do it? Let's go do it right now. So he gets on board, and we go out there, and we dig out a hole, level out some dirt, we take all these bricks, and we made a big fire pit. I'm talking like maybe four foot in diameter, like like as big as one of the small kiddie pools. And we did a very simple layout with bricks one way, then the other way. And there were three bricks high. That's how many bricks there were, you know, a lot of bricks. So we built this fire pit. And I'm like, we should make a fire. So we built a fire. And then he's like, I should call my friends. I'm like, call your friends. So he calls his friends. And uh, his friends are like, oh, we have a fire? Yeah, I'm like, come on down. We'll, we'll hang out. And we get their parents on the phone, and we say, hey, we're, we're just kind of hanging out by the fire. We built a fire pit. So all of a sudden we have, like, three families and their kids at the fire pit because we got our hands dirty. Do you know what happened? The kids looked forward to this. And almost every Saturday in from spring, it's all summer long, but from really spring through early fall, we had a fire every night on, on Saturday nights. And the adults came, too. We drank beers. We told stories. We bonded. The kids played capture the flag and things like that. They would go out and do things in the dark and then come back by the fire and back and forth and back and forth. They were both with us and independent by themselves. But it all started because we got our hands dirty. Get their hands dirty. Take them into the woods. Take them camping. Get out and do something. If they don't have to wash their hands a couple times a day, and not because of germies, but because they're doing stuff, you're doing it wrong. Get their hands dirty. Next one. Praise them for failing in the right context. So, I do not mean they half-assed something, they didn't get the job done, and you go, good job, you tried, even though you half-assed it. I don't mean that. Here's what I mean. If your kid, let's say, plays a sport like basketball, and they get out there and they work really hard, and they do their best in a game, and they get called for a couple fouls, Don't say, you know, you need to watch your fouls. So you know what? Good job. Good job. You were being so aggressive. You were being so aggressive and attempting to get the ball that you got fouls. Now, 
you're also going to teach them like, okay, here's how to get better and not get fouled. But you know what? You tried. If your kid goes out and does anything and gives it a hundred percent effort and they fail, don't just say, well, at least you tried. Don't just say you'll get them next time. Say, you know what? That's awesome. It was awesome that you had the courage to fail. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for not succeeding because you really were trying. And, and you need to help children understand failure and failure and I don't like this activity. They're very different. What I mean by that is when my son first wanted to play basketball, he would, he was all excited. We took him to the court and he couldn't even get the ball to touch the rim. And he became very discouraged. And it's like, well, what do you like about basketball? He likes to watch it on TV. He liked the concept. Like, well, of course you suck. You never played before. You're going to get better. And then we, you know, we also told him, like, we went to the place and the rim's 10 feet tall and you're like four, like three and a half feet. Well, in the leagues for kids your size, the basket's only eight feet high. You think you could hit that? Yeah, I could hit that. Well, then let's learn to dribble and let's play and let's get you in a league so you can go learn. Like, we, 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 we praised failure because you tried really hard. Now, if he didn't try really hard, we would have praised the failure. But the other thing was, if I had had an honest conversation with him and I just don't like basketball, not I don't like it because I didn't do well, but I really don't like this. Well, I'm not going to force an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old into an activity they don't like. How long do they get to be a kid? I don't think you as an adult, other than the things you have to do to provide for your family, should spend your time doing shit you hate. Why the hell would I make a kid waste their childhood doing it then? So we have to delineate between failure because we haven't gained the skill yet and we still have an affinity for it, what we're trying to accomplish, and failure and I don't like it, or success and I don't like it. This is where parents really, really screw up. I know parents with kids that are good at an activity, a sport, or let's say chess, or a language, or whatever it is. They have certain aptitudes that they're gifted in pursuing But the parent likes it more than the child. If your kids don't like something, let them do something else. Now, caveat. Let's say I have a kid that's good at baseball. He doesn't really want to play baseball anymore for whatever reason. Instead of playing baseball, he wants to sit on his ass and play video games. You're playing baseball. Now, what I will say to that kid is, You give me another reasonable activity that will occupy your time for about the same amount of time that you wish to pursue, whether it's basketball or learning to do engineering, pro you know, young kid engineering project. Well, I don't care what. As long as it's a legitimate thing, then you can replace baseball with that, but you're going to have something in your life beyond going to school, coming home, and sitting in front of a TV and playing video games. Right? I will let the child choose their activity. For my son, it was basketball. It was always basketball. And I let it be just basketball because there was something. But I believe our children should have something they're pursuing that challenges them. And we need to praise them for failing in the right context when they're trying as hard as possible. I think we also need to, and this is like so important, as a, as a guy that employed a lot of people in my life, I'm telling you, your children need this. You need to encourage what I call next step thinking. So when they get to the end of something, don't tell them what to do next. Ask them what they think they should do next. When they're right, say, that's awesome. How are we going to get that done? 
And if they say, I don't know, say, well, let's just think about it. And this is something I said to my son so many times. And I, I'm sure he was tired of hearing it, but I hear him using it today with his own son. There is no wrong answer. I'm asking you for your opinion. Okay. Now, I mean, if your opinion is something really that's a really, really bad idea that could get somebody hurt or something, then I'm going to tell you. Or if it's going to ruin something you've worked very hard on because it's a bad next step, I'll say, you know what, here's what's going to happen if you do that. If it's, my opinion is it's wrong, but it's harmless, well, let's try that and see what happens. Because one, you might be surprised and you might be outsmarted by an eight-year-old. And that's awesome. You have a gifted kid or you're not so gifted yourself. I don't know which one, right? Okay. But the other thing is if they fail, then you have an opportunity to praise their failure and say, that didn't work. What should we do now? If you do that, you create next step thinking so that when they're on step one, they're already trying to figure out what step two is. And then you don't have an a kid that becomes an employee of somebody like me that's given a job, that's told to accomplish a goal, gets to a stopping point, can't figure out what to do next about it, and doesn't pick up another activity and gets their ass fired in their first week. Because that's what happened when you worked for me. If you couldn't self-direct, if you couldn't think of what to do next, you don't end up with a kid that decides he wants to make chicken soup, looks up a recipe on, on, on the internet, sees this great recipe, finds that we have everything in the house to make the chicken soup, but we don't have parsley, and then doesn't even try to make the soup because I can't do it because I don't have parsley. And you might think that's a minor thing, but the person that won't make a recipe because they don't have one ingredient that isn't absolutely critical, in other words, you can't make chicken soup without chicken, but you could make vegetable soup, you could make beef soup, you could make pork soup. I know you haven't heard of a lot of pork soups, but they do exist. You can make fish soup. You can still make a soup, but you can't make chicken soup without chicken. But you can damn sure make chicken soup without parsley. You could figure out other herbs. You might find out, hey, you know what? An Italian seasoning would work good in there. Let me try that. You have to encourage next step thinking. The person that can't adapt a recipe for chicken soup cannot adapt to today's job market, period, the end infinity. Okay? So teach that next step thinking. Next, incentivize self-directed learning. And if I may quote very rarely Malcolm X, by any means necessary within the realm of what's right and moral. Okay, that's maybe that's that's beyond the impl implication from the Malcolm X quote. But you 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 need to incentivize self-directed learning, even if you need a great big, you know, golden trinket to do so. So what I mean by that is give your children projects to learn about something, but don't tell them what to learn about within reason. In other words, if they come up with something completely ridiculous, which I don't think many kids will, go along with it. You just say, what do you, what do you want to know more about? And then say, I'll tell you what. If you go out and come back to me and teach me four things I don't know about that, then Friday we'll go play putt-putt. Or I'll give you five bucks. Or I'll do one of your chores for you this week. Or, you know what, I'll kick five bucks into the money you're saving up to buy that thing. Or whatever. Right? I'll put you in charge Friday night over where we're going to go when we go out. Little things. Right? If you, if you generally maybe once or twice a month go out to eat and, you know, Parents usually say, you know what, kid, you're, I'm buying. You're going to go where we say. You know, you can say if you do, if you if you complete this project, this self-directed learning project, 
teach yourself enough to come teach me about it, then next Friday, you pick where we go to eat. Little competition never hurts either. Brother and sister, both old enough to participate in this, whichever one of you teaches me the most about your chosen subject gets to pick next week. Right? These, these are ways to encourage natural behaviors that we've, we've had beaten out of our children. And here's why you have to encourage these natural behaviors. Schools used to encourage self-directed learning. They now actually discourage self-directed learning. They now actually encourage controlled learning. So you have to counter this. And that's why you have to use some bait once in a while. But give rewards for inherently natural behavior so that your child will behave like a natural human being. Because the world is set up to make them behave in an unnatural way. And what I mean by that is I bet most of you listen to this show, listen to the show, among other things, to learn something because you want to learn. Today you're listening to the show because you want to learn about psychology. Even if you don't have kids, you're learning about a lot about psychology today. A lifetime of my experience, not just as a parent and a step-parent, which I believe being a step-parent is actually far more challenging in many ways than being a birth parent because you have to earn the title mom or dad. It's not just assigned to you, especially when you meet that child when they're old enough to know, this is not my birth father, this is not my birth mother. When that child turns around to you one day and just refers to you as dad, you have done something right. It is not easy. But also, sales and marketing are largely psychologically based and understanding how people think. Okay, So I, I am helping you learn that today. I bet you when you want to know something today, the first thing you do is go to Google and look it up. And yet we have kids that are glued to a smartphone, glued to Facebook, glued to Twitter, and they come to you and go, how do you spell? Type it in freaking Google. It'll tell you you're wrong and tell you the right way to spell it. Well, I, I try, and then you get kids. I tried that, and I'm so wrong, even Google doesn't know. Keep trying until you figure it out. Right? They, they don't do this nat. It is so natural. That's why you do it. What do you do pre-internet? Let's think about this. Most of you guys are old enough to be, uh, have been around when there wasn't an internet. Those of you who are younger and, and don't know a world without Google and Yahoo and Bing and all that other crap, you'll have to take my word for what I'm about to tell you. But most of us that grew up in the 80s and the early 90s, before we all had AOL and then real internet, would be sitting around and going, I want to learn fill in the blank. And we would go to a bookstore. Or we'd go to a regular store and look for a book or a magazine, and we would learn about it by reading about it. No one made us go. And I bet today, no one, you know, you're sitting there going, gee, I, I'd like to know more about, I don't know, hunting with, uh, with bow and arrow. No one puts a gun in your head and says, well, since you want to know more about that, you better get your ass on Google and start watching some YouTube videos. No one says, you know, uh, you know what, if you do a really good job, you'll get an A. You just naturally do this, right? It'll be on your permanent record and get you into college. No one does it. You just want to know. Kids naturally want to know. Encourage self-directed learning. And then another one, I talked about fire already. Teach them to safely use dangerous things. Okay, you do not take a 9-inch razor-sharp chef's knife and put it into the hand of the a five-year-old. If you do that, you are a reckless moron. You shouldn't be around children. You don't know what you're doing. And you should go put yourself into a proper mental institution so that you can learn to be a positive member of society and educate children properly. You are not qualified at this point. You don't do that. 
It is beyond that child's dexterity and maturity at that age. And when exactly can you put a sharp knife into a child's hand? That is subjective. I won't give you an age because I have known 14-year-olds who I wouldn't let near a freaking pin And I have known 14-year-olds who I would gladly take to the woods with me, put a gun in their hand, and have them hunt at my side. So it, it, it varies. But we should all be able to say, five-year-old, nine-inch chef's knife, not going to happen. Right? So we have to temper everything I'm about to say with the obvious. But the obvious is no longer obvious, so I'll point it out. But what I mean is, when I first started teaching my, my son firearm safety, He was about eight and a half years old. We had been, my, Dorothy and I had been together for, you know, about a year and a half-ish. And I went out as soon as Dorothy said it was okay, right? Because I'm still in that mode where you're still, you know, we weren't married yet. We really kind of knew at that point we're probably going to spend the rest of our lives together. But we hadn't really said it yet. And, you know, I'm still earning the right to, to be a father, And she said, well, I'd be okay if he had a BB gun as long as, you know, and I, no one ever lets him use it alone, whatever. And Man, I had a Daisy 105 pal in that kid's hands. And, boy, that's a great first BB gun. I know Red Rider, everybody, but little kids, are it's a bit long of a gun. 105 pal for those little kids, that is the great first BB gun. We sat down, and we learned everything about gun safety as though that was a 306. As that was a semi-automatic 306 with a hair trigger. We, when we went out with it, I would look for a fence to teach him how to cross a fence with a gun, alone and with me. I told him, you know what, Matt, if somebody got shot with this, it probably wouldn't kill him, but there's a one in a million chance that a perfect thing in the perfect place could actually seriously injure or even kill somebody. But it would definitely hurt somebody. It could put an eye out. It could make them bleed, you know. And then by then, he was old enough to kind of get what he had done. I said it could make him go to the hospital and have to get an IV, and then we laughed. And humor works too, right? Back to that story. But we treated that gun as though it was extremely dangerous, even though it was only just dangerous. And that meant by the time that he was 11 and 12 years old and I took him to an actual firearms range and had him shooting a 22 and 410 shotgun, that I was comfortable with him and he was comfortable with me as his teacher because I taught him to safely use dangerous things. Guns are dangerous. Knives are dangerous. Fire is dangerous. And you know what you learn when you learn to safely use something that's dangerous? It's a word that we desperately, desperately, desperately need in our society today, and we are sorely lacking responsibility. You only learn responsibility when you're trusted with something that can be dangerous. It's actually the only way to truly learn the actual burden of responsibility. If I make you responsible for raking the leaves and you don't rake the leaves, you haven't really learned anything about the burden of responsibility. If you successfully rake the leaves, you might have learned the value of doing a job and getting it done. But if the leaves don't get raked, nobody gets hurt, nobody falls down, nobody bleeds, Nobody cries, except maybe you when you don't get your allowance. But there's no real responsibility because there's nothing about it that can truly harm somebody else. But if I say to you, I am trusting you to build a fire, even under my supervision, I'm now saying I'm empowering you with the knowledge to do something that misused could cause great harm to others. You now bear the responsibility to use it properly. 
And you cannot, you will not, you shall not, you will never teach responsibility and the burden of responsibility until you trust people with things that can cause harm. And we all must, and I know some people are queasy with this, let me tell you something that 99% of people end up with that can cause harm. And if we don't teach them before they get there, they're more likely to cause serious harm with it. Not every person in our society will grow up and be an armed adult with firearms. No, they will not. Not everybody will grow up and actually even carry something like a knife on their person. They may use a kitchen knife, but not everybody will really be in a position to where a knife could cause harm to another people. But 99% of people in our country will grow up and acquire something called a driver's license at about 16 years of age. In fact, in many states, at 15, they'll get something called a learner's permit. And you or a certified instructor or another licensed driver will sit in the passenger seat and they'll sit in the driver's seat at 15 years of age behind a multi-ton vehicle that can kill dozens or even hundreds of people in the right situation. They can damage property or injure or cause death to others. We are all going to eventually be entrusted with an extremely dangerous device. In fact, one that is dangerous yet necessary to be productive in our world today. To be self-sufficient, you need to be able to operate a motor vehicle. If that's going to happen at 15 to 17 years of age on average, don't you think you should give them the opportunity to experience that burden of responsibility before it's all at once and that serious? Don't you think it should start with something like building a fire and putting it out in such a way and building it in such a way that the fire won't spread? Don't you think it should start with, we're going to make soup today and if you and you are going to cut the carrots and if you don't do it right, you are going to cut yourself, you are going to bleed, you are going to have to go to the emergency room, they're going to put a needle in your finger, right? Maybe don't be that blunt about it because you don't want to scare them, but teach them and drip that in as you're teaching them. Show them how to do it before you let them do it. Let them cut something that's easy to cut with a knife that's not going to cut them you know, first. And then gradually phase them into it. Get a BB gun and teach them how to use the BB gun in such a way and trust that they'll listen and trust that they'll learn with proper supervision and migrate them into more serious, dangerous things. But do dangerous things with your children safely. And you will teach them responsibility. And I'll say it one more time. You cannot will not, shall not, will never teach the burden of responsibility unless you give a person the opportunity to use something that if misused can be dangerous. Otherwise, there is no responsibility. There's no true responsibility because there's no burden that someone else may be harmed or you yourself may be harmed if you do not act with responsibility. And the next rule goes right in line with that. Put them in charge at times. Remember I said like, Okay, if you do this thing or the self-directed learning project or whatever it is you want to set up, uh, next Friday when we go out to eat, you're in charge. Well, maybe sometimes you should just say, you know what? Next week we're going out to eat and we're going to go watch a movie. Um, you get to pick both if you want to. And most kids are like, whoa, that's great. I get to pick both. But you might also give them a burden of responsibility in that leadership role. You do things all the time you would prefer not to do for your children. There's a point as they reach a certain level of maturity, not five again, right, but where you start to hand that off. And you might say, but you know what, son? Um, 
your mom wants to see XYZ movie. And I get my... And your mom likes to go to restaurant XYZ. And you get my... And you say, you know, even though you get to pick both, and whatever you say is going to be okay with me, you should maybe think about your mom or your sister or your brother in all of this. And maybe you should pick the one thing that you really want to do. And you should voluntarily pick the other thing that they want to do. And if they say something like, are you telling me to do that or something, you say, absolutely not. I don't even want you to make a decision right now. I want you to think about this and come back to me with your decision tomorrow. And then trust. Put them in charge and trust them. You know, when, when, you, when you start hunting with your children, you might say, you know, we're going to go here and set up for deer or whatever. But, you know, once you get into it a little bit and they begin to get in there saying, where do you think we should go today? If you're, you know, a hunter or you're a fisherman, where do you think we should go today? If you're taking a walk in the woods and you get to a point where there's a Y and there's a, you know, a lot of designated hiking trails, there's a map and there's different, where do you think we should go? Put them in charge. Once you've taught them to build a fire and it's time to build a fire, say, teach me to build a fire. Well, dad, you already know. Mom, you already know. Yeah, I know, but I want you to learn how to teach. So I want you to pretend that I don't know and I want you to teach me. Put them in charge. You know where kids learn this? Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. Now, I don't think Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts are what they used to be, but they do still teach that. And in many other activities. When I played soccer, we didn't, ha we ha we didn't have a captain. I had a really smart coach, and he would say just randomly, okay, we're going to do drills Um, on uh, juggling, passing, and taking shots on the goal. Jack, you're in charge for the next 15 minutes. Everybody does what Jack says. And I'd go do it. And then he'd say, okay, Jack, you're done. Tom, you're in charge. And uh, what do you? And sometimes he'd say, you know, now what we're going to do is uh, practice um, fielding the ball with our chest. So we're going to have somebody throw it. But, Tom, you're in charge. You set it all up. You do it the way you want to do it for the next 10 minutes. And sometimes you say, well, well, Bob, what do you think we should do next? And if, as long as it wasn't something like, we should quit practice early and go get ice cream, right? Because that was a real quick way to learn you don't get to be a leader if you're going to be irresponsible. It, whatever it was, if it was reasonable, well, go ahead, get it done. I mean, and we ended up, myself and one other person from that team, played for a youth soccer club called the JU Jaguars. This is before there was a Jacksonville Jaguars, but I think it's part of where that came from. Um, JU Jacksonville University was a youth soccer club that the 14 top youth players in the Jacksonville, Florida area played for. And there was only two years of your age that you could play on that team, and there were only 14 out of a huge city. We had two because of that coach. Because it taught leadership. And leadership means that when you left practice, you went home in practice. Leadership meant that when you went home, if you had any friends that liked to play soccer, you organized not just scrimmages, but practices with them. Because you had a natural leadership tendency. When I was in the Army, they would in basic training, they'd make somebody a squad leader. They're qualified for nothing. You show up, you know, this guy's a PFC because he got two of his friends to join the Army. Uh, ranking member of the squad, so you're in charge of the squad. And he'd be in charge of the squad for like two weeks and just get beat up for everything. And then the drill sergeant walk in and go, you know what, you did a, you did a good job even though you're a piece of crap. 
right? I'm not saying to teach your kids this way, right? Because this is a different level. But uh, you know what? You've done it for two weeks. And, hey, you, puke bag, get over here. You're in, take that, take that, that off. And you had a little armband you wore that made you squad a little black. Put that on. Okay, you're the squad leader now. Taught how to lead and how to follow. Put your kids in charge. That's the only way to learn leadership. You can't learn leadership unless you have the opportunity to lead. Okay? Next, this is the most important one, I think. Teach them about self-ownership. Teach them that their rights exist where their body is and their mind is. They have a right to decide what they believe. Even if they go to school and they have to put a certain answer on a test to get an A because they're playing that, they're working that system, remember because you've taught them how to work a system, that if they don't agree with it, they have a right to form their own opinion. And they have a right to defend that opinion. And they have a right to make a case for that opinion. Teach them that they have a right that if I don't want you to touch me, you don't get to touch me. Teach them that they have a right to that self-ownership, that self-preservation. That we should not engage in acts of violence, but if somebody attempts violence against you, you certainly have a right to defend yourself. And if you see unjustified violence on another person, you have a right to step in if you choose to do so and believe you can to prevent that violence. That you are sovereign. And don't dumb shit down. Use big words with your kids, and when they don't understand them, let's say, do you know what that means? You don't know what sovereign means? Let's find out what it means. Self-directed learning. Why don't we Google it? You might even have to help them spell it. Ah, what is that? Tell me what you think about that now that you know what that means. I own myself. How more empowering can you be than to teach somebody that they own themselves? And then you get so much out of that because when you teach a 10-year-old that he owns himself and then you say, there's a rule, he says, I don't want to do that, I own myself. Well, let's talk about how that works. See, you're a child, you live under my roof, I provide for you, you own yourself. You certainly, if I was being physically abusive to you, would have every right in the world to defend yourself and to seek help from somebody else. But since I'm a good parent doing good things for you and I've set rules for you, then you have an obligation to comply with those rules. But you certainly have a right to form your own opinion about that. And under the right context and the right time, you even have a right to voice to me what your opinion is about that. And I have a right to consider it and decide whether or not it's going to fly in my home. And you know what you're doing when you start teaching a child that? You are working your ass out of a job. That is your job as a parent. From day one, you should be trying to work yourself out of a job. My goal, and I told my son this from the time he was about eight years old, I thought he was old enough to hear this responsibility. My goal is to have less rules for you every single year until you're 18 and old enough to do whatever you want according to the law. But I don't want, because I've removed a rule, for you to necessarily violate it. I want you to know when to discipline yourself. When to discipline yourself. And that's empowering. That's so empowering. Because it really is about taking ownership for yourself. And then what does that person think when they grow up to be a young adult and have your your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, if you're mentoring a grandchild, And the state sends the message that the state basically has a right to their children. Well, if I own myself, my kid owns himself, then you don't get to say shit. I decide. You can use, when you listen to this, don't you think, holy crap, this should be a course in high school. Yeah, you think that the system wants you to think this way? That you own yourself? 
You think the system really wants to incentivize a place where you're allowed to fail and you're forced to learn from it, that you are challenged consistently and you have to rise to the challenge independently? Do you think the system wants you to learn how to work the system? Do you think the system really wants you getting your hands dirty? And if they did, why have they shit all over the trades and skills that involve getting your hands dirty and told our children that they don't want us to do that? Do you think you really want a system where people are praised for failing, but only in the right context of you tried, you didn't succeed, but you made a 100% effort, and now you can determine how to succeed, not, oh, you win even though you lost? And if so, why are they giving out participation trophies? Do you think we really have a system that wishes to encourage next step thinking? And if they did, would they be taking 110 steps to solve a simple arithmetic problem? I'm, I'm, I'm being serious. I'm not being facetious. Do you think they really want self-directed learning? And if so, why have they so formalized not only learning, but the means by which we test that learning? Do you think the system wants you to safely use dangerous things? If so, why have they banned everything that's remotely dangerous, or attempted to anyway? Do you, do you think our system wants you to be in charge? If you're in charge of your, of, of your own life, how can they tell you what they want you to do? Do you think our system wants our children and us to practice self-ownership? It flies in the face of statism. That's why you have to teach it, because they're not going to. And now I have for you my bonus rule. My bonus rule is something that you should work on holistically with your child at all times. And that is, everyone is great at something. Find that for yourself. You can have a kid that is the least, least, least of all aptitude for sports. And no matter how hard they try, no matter how many laps they run, no matter how many times they bounce a basketball, no matter how many times they try to throw a baseball or hit a baseball, they just aren't good at it. But they're good at something. That child might have the aptitude to be the next great chess player or an incredible fisherman. I mean, there, there's so many things that child might be good at. You might have a kid that you think has no aptitude for physical activity in sports, and they just define the right physical activity. Some people aren't fast as runners. So that takes a lot of sports out. But there's a lot of sports that don't require you to be fast. They require you to be quick. I don't mean necessarily running, but quick with hand-eye coordination. And maybe they're actually good at that. You know, I mean, you never know what a person's going to be great at. But I defy you, unless you find someone who is truly incapacitated. They can't talk, they can't walk, they can't speak. They're, they're truly like Tommy from the movie, Pinball Wizard. Uh, and even he was good at pinball. I know that's a, a stretch. But unless you're, uh, what I'm thinking, the, the movie, or not the movie, the video, right, uh, from, from Metallica. Or the guy's just laying in the bed and can't move. And unless you're there, there's something you can do, and there's something you're brilliant at. And this is what we've done. We've started this message to our children to try to create self-esteem, that you're wonderful and you're super, and everything you do is great. And you know what? That's why we have record numbers of teenage children and young adults murdering themselves. You think I was going to say killing themselves? Let's be honest. When you intentionally take another life, you're murdering. 
When you commit suicide, you're murdering yourself. And you're doing as much harm to those that live as any other murderer could ever could. In fact, even more. If I had somebody I cared about, and they were robbed in the street, and whether they resisted or complied, if the person who robbed them shot them and killed them, I'm going to be devastated. I'm going to be hurt. And it's going to be a scar that's going to live with me emotionally for the rest of my life. I'm even going to feel physical pain in my suffering and sorrow that they're gone. But I'll understand that an evil person did evil for the sake of evil. But if that person who I cared about, who I loved, puts a gun to their head and murders themselves, I'm going to also feel that I should have known I should have done something. When a person kills themselves, when they murder themselves, they cause immense pain to those they leave behind. It's a horrible thing. Why are more children doing this? I believe it's at least partially a direct result of the message that everything you do is perfect. Everything you do is super. Because eventually, that child will grow wise enough, smart enough, and become informed enough to realize you've been lying to them. And then they'll feel that even the things they are good at, they're not good at. And they will feel completely worthless, and they will feel that I will never accomplish anything in life. And one of my best friend's son, at 20 years of age, hung himself in his room with his belt and left a note that said precisely that, I just don't feel that I'll ever be anything of any value to the world. And I believe at least is part of a system that told him you were special all the time. Where when we're actually willing to say, well, you're not good at this. You're not good at that. You're not good at this. Now you can work to be better, or you can choose those are the things you don't want to focus your time on. But man, you're good at this, 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 and this. Man, you're incredible at that. You might want to encourage that. You don't like this one? Well, what about these other two things you're good at? Which one do you want to do? Now, you put that in a young person, and then they become resilient because they know, oh, I suck at this. There's things I suck at, right? I can't draw worth a crap. I mean, I cannot draw. My God, I can't draw. I'm telling you that there are four-year-old kids that draw with a crayon in their fist that are better artists than me and better artists than I'll ever be. I cannot draw. I even wrote a poem one time, because I can write, that was called, I cannot draw, so I write. So difficult it is to see this world with the eyes of an artist, and yet not be able to draw, so I write. That's resiliency. This is how to teach your children to be resilient. One more time before we close up, all the rules in order. Let them fail. Challenge them. Give them a system and teach them to work it. Get their hands dirty. Praise their failing in the right context. Encourage next step thinking. Incentivize self-directed learning. Teach them to safely use dangerous things. Put them in charge at times. Teach them self-ownership. And teach them that everyone is great at something and it is their mission, their goal in life to discover the things that they're great at. And you will have a resilient child that will become a resilient adult that will raise resilient children and prodigy to resilient grandchildren 
And if there is any saving this nation, if there is any saving this modern world, it is there, it is in your hands. And I challenge you today, and I'm putting you in charge of doing it wherever and whenever you can. With that, if you like this show, if you think it's worth 18.3 cents an episode and you are not a member of the Support Brigade, I'm asking you today to consider becoming a member. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more there about how to do just that. Again, the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. You'll get a lot of great discounts on a lot of things you're probably buying anyway. You'll get ebooks that are worth the entire process, uh, price of the membership for four years. You'll get two benefits alone that are worth the membership for two years and a lot of other great stuff. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, all of you qualify for a discount. To get the discount, email me, jack, at the survivalpodcast.com. Uh, with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll get back to you. The other way that you can help support this show is when you shop at Amazon. I've got an interesting little tidbit on Amazon on the Amazon product of the day for you today. But all you do is, let's say you want to shop on Amazon. And by the way, did you know today is Prime Day? There's tons of crap on Amazon for sale today. Super deals. They're calling it like Black Monday or Black Friday in July, right? So Prime Day. So whatever you want to do, today's a good day to do it on Amazon. But you go to tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z.com, and uh, then you just shop on Amazon like you always would. You don't spend any extra money. You don't do anything else. In fact, you type one less letter because tspaz is one less letter than Amazon, and we get credit for your business on Amazon, and they get free advertising on the show every day. Now, if you go to tspaz, you will see the item of the day, and every day I do a journal entry on the blog for the item of the day. Today's is an adapter. Okay, it is an adapter to take propane, like the green propane gas cylinders, and you put this adapter on it. There's a little hole. You open it up. You squirt some silicon in there so that it lubricates it. You close it up, and you use it to charge up the magazines for blowback airsoft guns. And I have a great article out today about why you should be using blowback airsoft handguns in your tactical training, in your handgun training. And boy, what a great activity to do with your kids, to challenge them, and because it's relatively safe, to very early on take a dangerous thing, teach them to be safe with it, and put them in charge like you set up the next range for us. You set up the next drill. Huh? What a great thing. TSPAS.com is a way to do that. And check out the article that I put out today uh, on on the uh, the propane adapter for uh, the reason you want this, just the short version. Uh, green gas is what you usually charge this up with. It comes in a can. Uh, uh, two half-pound cans are about $20 to $25. A, a one-pound can of propane is about 5 bucks at Walmart. And you think, well, a green gas, that sounds green. It's not green. It's not green. Green gas is propane. With silicon in it, that's why you need the silicon oil to lubricate your gun, and things that make it not smell like propane. That, that's, that's all green gas is. It costs a fortune. It's only available in specialty shops, or the shipping's expensive online. Or you can use propane. And it'll smell a little bit, but yeah. And then you can shoot a lot for very little. Check it out. It is a great way to train, to have fun, to teach responsibility in new shooters and young shooters. And you can always support us by going to tspaz.com. Um, next up, I want to talk about the song that I'm going to close with today. And, and you know, I believe in synchronicity, and I believe in serendipity, and I believe in the real law of attraction, right? I mean, the law, real law of attraction is not, when I get to the mall, there'll be a place to park, and I get there, there's a place to park, and I go, I manifested that. That's, that's hippy-dippy bullshit. But every action we take 
that we send out into the universe and we send out in contact with other people creates multiple reactions. And when we're doing things and we're walking our right path, I believe that the responses to those come in a timely manner at just the right time. Today that happened. Yesterday I sent out a message. I am, am, am willing to take your requests for a song. Today I did this show and I got a song I've never heard of by a group I've never heard of. And it is awesome. And it's when you hear it, you're going to be like, you couldn't have picked a better song for today's show. The group is called the Avid Brothers, and they've got a really kind of unique, funky sound. It's like, it's like pop and bluegrass and country and punk and funk all in one. And the song is called Ain't No Man. I'm going to give you a few of the lyrics right now, and I think you'll draw the conclusions for yourself. Opening stanza, there ain't no man can save me, there ain't no man can enslave me. Ain't no man or men that can change the shape my soul is in. There ain't nobody here who can cause me pain or raise my fear, because I only got love to share. If you're looking for truth, I'm proof you'll find it there. Awesome, huh? Huh? I mean, just think about that. You've got to serve something ain't that right. I know it gets dark, but there's always light. You don't have to buy in to get into the club. Trade your worries. you got to show up if you want to be seen. It matters to you, Ma. It matters to me. Th this song speaks to everything that I'm talking about. Self-ownership and self-respect and having pride in who you are and knowing that if you do that, others will value you as well. How about that? How about this? You say you look funny. I say you're a star. I say you're whatever you think you are. Watch the naysayers fall right in line. If we believe that, they'll say, she's so pretty, he's so fine. And it's true. I've seen people who are, are nothing to write home about in their looks, but they have an air and a presence that's very attractive to other people. That's the guy that you look at and he's got this smoking hot wife, or the other way around, and you're like, how? Because... They know who they are and they know what value they have. This song is awesome. It really is. There ain't no man can save me. There ain't no man who can enslave me. There ain't no man or men that can change the shape my soul is in. Because I own myself. I added that last part. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There ain't no man can't save me. There ain't no man can't enslave me. Ain't no man a man that can change the shape my soul is in. There ain't nobody here. Who can cause me pain or raise my fear? Cause I got only love to share. If you're looking for truth, I'm proof you'll find it there. You got to serve something, ain't that right? I know it gets dark, but there's always a light. You don't have to buy in to get into the club. Trade your worries. You gotta show up if you wanna be seen If it matters to you, Ma, it matters to me I'm gonna fall hard, yeah, I know I am When the clouds crack up, I laugh with them There ain't no man can't save me There ain't no man can't enslave me 
There ain't nobody here who can cause me pain or raise my fear Cause I got only love to share If you're looking for truth, I'm proof you'll find it there You say you look funny, I say you're a star I say you're whatever you think you are Watch your naysayers fall right in line If we believe it, they'll say She is so pretty, he is so fine There ain't no man can't save me There ain't no man can enslave me Ain't no man or man that can change the shape my soul is in There ain't nobody here Cause me pain or raise my fear Cause I got only love to share If you're looking for truth I'm proof you'll find it there You got to go somewhere, ain't that true? Not a whole lot of time for me or you Got a whole lot of reasons to be mad Let's not pick one I live in a room at the top of the stairs Got my windows wide open and nobody cares And I got no choice but to get right up When the sun comes through Ain't no man can't save me There ain't no man can't enslave me There ain't no man or man that can change the shape my soul is in There ain't nobody here Who can cause me pain or raise my fear Cause I got only If you're looking for truth, I'm proof you'll find it there. If you're looking for truth, I'm proof you'll find it there. If you're looking for truth, I'm proof you'll find it there.